Good morning. Today, as we continue to learn from the unfolding story of God's relationship with his people, we move from the call of Samuel to Samuel now anointing David as king. And it's from David's line that Jesus is born into the world to save all who put our trust in him. So David's story is actually found in a very significant amount of scripture. First and second Samuel into first Kings all of First Chronicles, as well as a large portion of the Psalms, are all reflections of David's life. And of all the characters we meet in the Old Testament, and there are some characters, David stands out because God calls him a man after God's own heart. And I think it's important for us to discover why, because if we want to grow as disciples, we want to be people after God's own heart, Right? So what can we learn from David? Well, there are four significant character traits that David displayed consistently through his life, and they are faith, passion, humility, and a teachable spirit. And we'll unpack those as we look at David's life. But first, let's just take a moment to recap and see how we got to this point. Our God, the great I Am, calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, showing us that he's a God who wants to be in relationship with people. God calls Moses to deliver his people from slavery into freedom, and by the end of Exodus, God's people have been set free, miraculously walking to freedom through the opened waters of the Red Sea. And God led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and fed them with manna for 40 years of what Lutheran author Daniel Erlander calls the wilderness school. Through those years in the wilderness, the people slowly begin to learn what it means to belong to this God, to be his people. But once they arrive at the promised land, they start to want a king like the other nations had, a head that other nations could negotiate with, someone to work on for favors or enforce their will on others. And in 1 Samuel 8, the prophet Samuel told them, you think you want that, but you really don't. <laughs> a human king will demand things from you that you don't want to give. But still, the people demanded a king, so eventually God said, so be it. And at first, God had Samuel anoint the kind of leader that looked like what they wanted. Saul looked kingly. He was handsome and a head taller than everyone else. And the Spirit of the Lord empowered him to rescue the city of Jabesh, and he became king. But not long after that, Saul sinned against the Lord. Under pressure from people to get the show on the road and take some ground, rather than waiting on the Lord, Saul took on the priestly role to perform a sacrifice before a battle himself, which made Saul look powerful and decisive, but it didn't honor God. Saul's sin was a lot like Moses' sin that kept him from entering the promised land. He was taking God's authority on himself. And as a result, the Lord removed his Holy Spirit from Saul. And God looked for another to be king, one who didn't just want to use God's power or use God's name to gain power over people, but who wanted to actually know God's heart. Enter David. And we first meet David as the one that nobody considers. God sent Samuel to the house of Jesse, who lines up his sons for review. And Samuel has his own opinions about which one looks the part, but God tells him directly, I'm not looking for the things that you are. I'm looking for the right heart 
and he's not in the room. So Samuel asks, do you have any other sons? Well, there's the one in the field watching the sheep. Okay, go get him. And David gets dragged in, and God says, that's the one. And at age 15, 16, David is anointed king of Israel and then sent back to the fields to work with the sheep. (laughs) But not alone. Verse 13b tells us, from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Out in the fields, David begins to grow in his relationship with God. I mean, you'd have some things to talk to God about after that experience, wouldn't you? God starts him off learning the tools of shepherding leadership while teaching David to talk to him about everything, learning to listen to God's voice, learning in his own wilderness school what it means to belong to this God. And David trusted what God told him, and he grew in faith. And it isn't long before he's put in the spotlight. After the Holy Spirit left King Saul, an evil spirit that disturbed him filled the void, and it was suggested maybe some soothing music might help. And someone remembered, doesn't Jesse's youngest son David play the lyre? Let's get him in here. None of them knew that God had chosen David to be king. So David was first brought into the royal court as a musician. And when David would play, the evil spirit would flee, and Saul had relief. Why would this be? Because when David played, he filled the space with the praise of the living God, something that evil cannot abide. David's worship was passionate because it was personal. David is the author of many psalms, writing songs of praise and lament and thankfulness seemed about as natural to him as breathing. Saul could see that God was with him. So he wanted him around, and he made David one of his armor bearers. But apparently, he was still too young for battle, because when the army gathered in 1 Samuel chapter 17 to face the Philistines, David's older brothers were drafted into an army of homeland defense, much like the people of Ukraine today, taken from the farm fields into the battlefield. But David was sent back to take care of the sheep until his dad sent him to bring food to his brothers. And there David heard the Philistine giant Goliath taunting the army to send a champion to fight him, and it got David's dander up. Who does he think he is insulting our God? Why isn't he anybody fighting this guy? Fine, I'll fight him. And this was amazing. First of all, it's amazing that they let him. Because I imagine David's like 17 by now a shepherd boy taking on a seasoned warrior. And this is not a no-stakes attempt. This challenge is winner take all. The people whose champion wins win the war. So by letting David face Goliath, they are all banking their future on him. If he loses, they all lose. This is not just a sure, take a shot, why not? If he's their champion, he's their only shot. So what is it about David that makes King Saul say, yeah, kid, I'll bet my kingdom's future on you against that giant? Saul had seen that God was with David. I believe that Saul was banking more on what God could do than on David. But it also affirms God's choice because at the end of the day, the champion who saved them was not their king, Saul, but one of the king's armor bearers, a court musician, a local shepherd boy whose strength called upon was not his own but the Lord's. David says to Goliath, 
You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. The Lord will deliver you into my hands, and the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. Goliath is brought down by the faith of a boy with a slingshot. And that victory overnight, after that, David becomes a household name. And it gets harder and harder for Saul's ego to tolerate it. Saul keeps him in the royal court to keep an eye on him, probably. And David continues to play for Saul. And as he grows in age and maturity, Saul gives him some position with the army officers. And his favor grows with them as well. But keeping David close backfired for Saul because his daughter Michael falls in love with David. And David becomes his son-in-law. And his son Jonathan becomes such fast friends with David, they made a covenant that no matter what else happened in the family, they would always be family to each other. And it was a good thing they did because a lot else happened in the family. David's career as a court musician ends abruptly when Saul, in a fit of rage, tries to skewer him with a spear. They have an attempt at reconciliation until Jonathan finds out that Saul really had decided to kill David, and he warns David to run which he does. And the next long season of David's life is one where David, with a loyal band of soldiers, fights Israel's enemies for Saul's sake, while at the same time hiding from Saul, who still wants him dead. And several times, David could have killed Saul, but he chose not to because of his reverence for God, because God had told David one day he would be king, but the timing of when was not his to take into his own hands. So years pass, with David living in caves and hiding, writing psalms, crying out to God for help and comfort, and rejoicing in God's help and comfort. And in this time, David grew in faith, trusting that God would be his strength. He grew in passion for God in his worship, and in the honest expression of prayer in his psalms, he grew in humility before God, because he knew without a doubt he needed God every moment. This school of hardship gave David the humility he needed to truly become a man after God's own heart. And finally, in battle, Saul dies, and his son Jonathan also dies in the same battle. And David mourns their loss, even as he's made king, not without some kerfluffle, warring and angst, because power always makes people a little nuts. But in 2 Samuel, one of the first things David does as king is planned to bring the Ark of the Covenant that had been displaced back to Jerusalem. And David wants the people to know that in his rule, God has central place. But unfortunately, David doesn't actually do the work of figuring out how to show honor to God in doing so. He just kind of piecemeals a plan together. And do you remember the Ark of the Covenant usually is hidden away in the holiest of holy places for only the high priest to access? Yeah, David has it put on an ox cart to drag it across country. And the oxen, when they stumble and the ark almost falls, the indignity of this is the last straw. And the person who reaches out to try to catch it is struck dead the minute they dare touch it. And the fear of God falls on everyone, including David. And at first, David is not only afraid but also angry and frustrated with God and embarrassed, I think, at how badly this all went. But after a while, in humility, David realized his mistake. 
His intention to honor God had not actually taken the center stage of his heart. He'd been using God's positional authority to make himself look good and powerful and holy rather than seeking what God asked him to do. And David repented, showing a teachable spirit. He did his research, and he found out the way the ark was supposed to be transported that actually honored God well, and then he did it upright. And the ark came into the city, carried by Levites on golden poles, with sacrifices being offered to the Lord's name. And David himself went before it, singing and praising and leaping and dancing before the Lord. And the Lord was pleased with David. But David's wife was not. She thought this undignified and unworthy of her and not what the people she cared to impress would appreciate. And David famously said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. To David, God's glory was what mattered. And Michael doesn't agree. And after this, she doesn't show up much in his life. David's worship, his honoring of God is passionate. It takes all of who he is. And because of that passion for God, God also wants to take another step and build a temple for God to glorify him. But God surprisingly says no. In 1 Chronicles 22, David said, But this word of the Lord came to me. You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed too much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest. He is the one who will build a house for my name. Now what does this tell us about God? God supported David in the battles that he fought. In that day and time, that's how things were. In a broken world, wars sometimes must be fought. But this is not what actually honors God best. Ultimately, our God does not find glory in the loss of human life. Our God is a God of peace. In God's kingdom prepared for us, the lion will lay down with the lamb. The leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. That's what God wants for us. And that's why the one to build God's temple must be a man of peace. Because that's what God wanted his people to know about who he is. And David could have taken offense at that. He could have taken it personally. But instead, he glorifies God by submitting his own idea of what would honor God best to God's idea, to acknowledge how God himself would choose to reveal his glory to the world. David's passion for God is submitted to God's wisdom in humility. Faith, passion, humility, and a teachable spirit. And God blesses David with the phenomenal rule until we reach 2 Samuel 11 where everything goes off the rails. David, in his late middle age, stays home when his armies go to war, and he gets bored, and he ends up abusing his kingly authority to commit adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of one of his trusted soldiers. And when Bathsheba tells David she's pregnant, David again abuses his kingly authority to send her husband to the front lines to get him killed. And in that move, many of David's loyal soldiers are sent to their deaths just to cover up David's sin. And he probably would have gotten away with it. Who would question a king? 
except for the fact that David actually did know he was accountable to God. God sends the prophet Nathan to reveal one-on-one with David that God saw his sin and was holding him guilty. And David immediately confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. And if you want to see David's confession, turn to Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. See, David had seen what happened to Saul when God took away his Holy Spirit. And he suddenly realized he had forgotten what was most important in life. Nothing mattered more than God's presence being with him. And he humbled himself, and he repented, and he asked. He begged the Lord to forgive him and to lead him again. And immediately, it actually staggers the mind to see how immediately God did. David had broken three of the top ten commandments, coveting, adultery, murder, and throwing himself on the mercy of God. He was restored. And true repentance David tried to repair what he had broken. His painfully honest confession became part of the public songbook of the faith. If you look in your Bible, the actual title of Psalm 51 is when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. This is the most public forum available, the social media post of David's day, and he posted it himself. This king does not hide his guilt. And he didn't hide that he believed the only redemption possible for him was found in the power of the Lord's forgiveness. And he was forgiven. But actions have consequences. The child of that adultery did not survive, and David grieved that loss. But then he took Bathsheba under his protection as his wife, now that he had killed her husband and destroyed her reputation. But through all this, David was restored, but his reign was never quite as easy again. After this, David endured a series of challenges to the throne, including one by his own son, Absalom, that constantly put him in the place of needing to call on the Lord, which he did. And finally, on his deathbed, David made his son Solomon, a son who was born to him of Bathsheba, the woman he had wronged, the new king of Israel. And eventually, Solomon became the king who would establish the temple of the Lord. And this is the end of David's chapter in history. So what can we learn from David? What made David a man after God's own heart? It certainly wasn't that he always did the right thing, because he didn't. If the cancel culture we are living in today had existed back then, we wouldn't even have heard of the stories of David, because his wrong choices were so very wrong. But as Scripture shows us, God disciplines those he loves. David, this is not you. This is not the one I know you are. Come back to me. Come back to you. And what makes David the man after God's own heart is that he does over and over and over again. He's teachable. He sees that he doesn't actually know everything. David shows us that those who will come humbly to the Lord, no matter what their sin, will find forgiveness with him. And David, for all of his earthly power and glory, repents when he sees that he's run off into what he himself thinks should be done, instead of listening for what God himself reveals will bring him glory. Faith, passion, humility, and a teachable spirit. 
And I think this is a challenge for our discipleship still today. I think it's pretty easy for us to think that we already know what glorifies God. I mean, building a temple for God sounds like a good idea. How could that be wrong? But God says, no, not the right time, not the right way. And because God is God, David listens with humility and a teachable spirit. And in John chapter 7, Jesus also invites the Pharisees to temper their passion for God's glory with humility, to consider they also might not know everything about how God wants to be revealed to the world, to be known not just by his law, but by his mercy. In John 7, the Pharisees are angry that Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath day, which they see as a violation of God's honor the Sabbath law and God's authority. And Jesus challenges them that they conduct the ritual of circumcision on Sabbath days to glorify God without violation. So why would the healing of a whole person on the Sabbath day be a violation of God's glory? But the Pharisees' righteous passion for defending God's glory and reputation actually keeps them from seeing what the Lord is actually doing in front of them for those who need him. So Jesus challenges them in John 7, 24, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Still today, there are ways that we can think we're glorifying God with all the best of intentions and passion for God that actually can hinder others from approaching him to receive the healing work God wants to bring into their lives. This is why Jesus ran interference with the Pharisees, so that God's glory could be revealed for the sinner and the tax collector through him. Because human beings look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Now, sometimes God will use us, like he used Nathan, to help someone to see where God is calling them into repentance and back into relationship with them, usually in a context of a relationship one already has who trusts in God for their good. But mostly today, Jesus reaches people through us, showing first that love that draws people to trust in him. We honor Jesus' glorious work of redemption best when we ask for the grace to see our neighbor through his eyes, to seek to engage them in the way that he does, in both truth and grace. But that takes faith, passion, humility, and a teachable spirit. What was special about David as the man after God's own heart was that David knew what makes David great is not David. It's the God who found him when he was out tending the sheep. He knew the, the power, only the power of this God will defeat the giant enemy that taunts and terrifies. And when we try to battle for him, when we try to run out ahead of him, when we try to judge by appearances instead of seeking where God's heart is, we may miss the ways God would choose to make himself known. Because God's ways are often not our ways. And God reminds us of that when it's through the line of David that God chooses to send his son Jesus to enter into the battle against sin and death for us. Because this battle against sin, death, and the devil is not one that we can fight. To have any hope of victory in this battle, we need a champion. Because this fight for eternity is winner take all. But Jesus stepped into the fight for us. 
And on the cross, it looked as if our champion had been defeated, that death and sin and destruction had won, that we could only look forward to a life full of slavery to fear and sin and our own death. But then out of death itself, our God snatched the victory out of the hands of the evil one. And resurrection life began, first for Jesus and then through him for you and for me and for all who will call him our champion. Because Jesus didn't just come to take a shot, beloved. He's our only shot. And he came for you and for me and for this broken world. He is the champion. And as David learned, our strength is not in our ability to never fall, because fall we will, but in knowing on whom we need to fall, to live with faith in Jesus Christ, our champion, to trust he alone has the strength and the righteousness to carry us, to live passionately into our relationship with him with all that we are, loving God and seeking to look like Jesus and how we interact with those in our world so they too may come to lay their sins on him and put their trust in him for restoration, as David did. To never lose our humility before God, to know we need what our Savior alone gives, that we all need his truth and his grace because he is God and we are not. And to always, always have a teachable spirit, the spirit of a disciple, a student learner, ready to hear and learn and follow where he leads, knowing he's our current hope and our eternal future. You see, like David, you are not the hero of your story. You are not the champion of your life. Jesus is. So you are free to follow him with joy because the winner takes all and the Lord of angel armies has won that victory for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your grace. We thank you for the way that you so tenderly approach us, that you call us back to you with your grace and your truth. Uh, when we wander from you, when we're stuck in brokenness, Lord, we know that you are the Savior and the Redeemer. We pray that you would teach us as you taught David to live in faith and passion and humility and with a teachable spirit. Whether where we are now is in a wilderness school learning how to follow you or in the caves of despair and disappointment or in a time of dancing with joy, no matter where we are, Lord, help us to see how you want to reveal who you are to the world so that all may know your saving grace and your redeeming love too. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.